Today's reading is from John chapter 7, verses 14 through 36. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. Let's pray before we consider this text. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. In it is life. We pray that you would allow it, make it, uh, pierce our hearts. Uh, if your spirit doesn't show, uh, nothing happens. And so we need your spirit. Would you grant it to us this morning as we consider this word which contains power and treasures? Make them known to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in the last chapter, John chapter 6, the crowds asked a really important question. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And I, I think every, uh, every religion asks this same question in some way or form. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Or what must we, be do, we do to be doing the works of the gods? Or to get our lives, what must we do to get our lives in line with supernatural powers and forces in the world? How can I get my life in step with the powers, whatever those powers might be? Even if you're a secular person, maybe you don't believe in, in any sort of supernatural 
world, the question is still asked, and the question goes something like this. How can I validate my existence as a human being? What must I do to validate my existence as a human? Do you remember what Jesus says when the people ask this question? What must we do to be doing the works of God? He says, here's the work of God, the works of God. Believe in me. That's it. That's the works of God. Believe in me. It's not even a work, is it? Belief. And so belief has been a really big deal in John's gospel. And what we're going to do this week and then in the next week as well, it's kind of we got a two-parter. We're going to be considering unbelief this week, and next week we'll consider belief. In this passage here, we have on full display unbelief. Now, a little background. We didn't read the entire text. What's happened so far is that Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. Jerusalem was to be, of all places on on planet Earth, this was like the hub of where the works of God were on full display. I mean, this is where God met with his people. This is where God took up residence on Earth. And the the whole operation was to be doing the works of God in the world, to be a holy nation, a holy city on a hill. And yet, it's a, it's a bastion of unbelief, Jerusalem is. Oddly, ironically. The place is supposed to be filled with belief in the one whom the Father sent is filled with unbelief, which is a huge irony. And so Jesus is here. He's in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Booths which was a feast that uh, commemorated the time spent uh, wandering in the wilderness. It took place in the fall. And he's here. And uh, what we see is that the crowds, the religious leaders, they all exhibit unbelief. And so what we're going to do this morning is consider a couple of things. Unbelief's fruits and then unbelief's root. So the fruits and then the root of unbelief. Okay, so first the fruits. Now there's three questions that are asked of Jesus. You, you see in your, in your order of worship, there's like three paragraphs. Each one of those paragraphs represents kind of a different line of inquiry that the people ask about Jesus. And the first question they ask is related to his education, his training. They're blown away at his teaching. And, um, and this is what they say, verse 14 and 15. At the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Okay, the Jews, they prized their teaching. Uh, their rabbis went through extensive education and, and an extensive kind of ordination process by which they received kind of a stamp of approval that they were then uh, commissioned to go teach the things of God to the, to the people of God. And then they look at Jesus. Where did he get his training? Where did he go to seminary? When was he ordained? What sort of session approved his ministry? They can't figure it out. And look at where he grounds his, his training and education. Look at verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. In other words, 
I had training. I've had extensive training from all eternity, and it's been up in heaven with the Father. He has commissioned me. He's ordained me into this world to come and declare divine, sacred mysteries to you. That's where my training was. Heaven from all eternity. And look at all the crowds respond to that claim. Well, actually, he, he makes the claim in verse 19 that they want to kill him. And look, look, look at what they say in verse 20 to that claim. You have a demon. You, you're not coming from above. You, you're speaking a message from below, from the, from the pits of hell. You have a, you're demon-possessed. That's what it is. Yeah, this stuff, you, you have some kind of supernatural thing, but it's not from heaven. It's from, it's from Satan. And so this brings us to the first fruit of unbelief. And here's what it is. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Listen to what St. Hilary said in the 4th century. All unbelief is foolishness, for it takes such wisdom as its own finite perception can contain and measures infin infinity by that petty scale. So let me try to paraphrase St. Hilary is saying, all unbelief is foolishness because it takes our little pea-sized brains and it tries to evaluate, critique, and measure infinite holy God by the standard of our little brain. It's foolish. It, it, it just doesn't even, it doesn't even come close to cutting the task of evaluating uh, the Word of God. And that's precisely what's going on. The people, they don't like what they see, and so they conclude, not that he's coming from the Father, and maybe the word of, of the Father sort of confronts them in, in ways they may not like. Instead, they say, we don't like it, therefore, you're from hell, or you've got a demon, is what they say. You're demon-possessed. And by the way, the, Jesus' claim that, they're gonna, that they want to kill him, they think it's ridiculous. But in this very passage, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees are going to are going to mobilize the temple police to go arrest him. And as we know, in just a few months, this is the fall before his death and his crucifixion, trial, arrest. In just a few months, he's going to be back in Jerusalem and they are going to kill him. So it's not, it's not crazy talk. So that's the first little uh, clue, the first thing. We get the fruit of foolishness. Now in the second line of questioning, in that second paragraph, verses 25 through 31, we get to see kind of this foolishness from a slightly different angle. It's going to give us a little more depth to the foolishness of unbelief, the fruit foolishness of, of, of unbelief. Uh, and so here's the second question. It says, verses 25 through 27, we, we see that members of the crowd uh, say that he's not the Christ. And guess what their basis is for concluding that this Jesus who walks among them is not, is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not the one that they've been waiting on. Listen to what they say, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that is a claim with absolutely zero foundation. The, the scriptures are clear that the Messiah's origin would be known. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, a, from old, from of old, from ancient days. The scriptures talk about the origin 
of Jesus. But for some reason, these, this crowd has, has an assumption that when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from. It's going to be a big unknown. But not only is it foolish, but, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones has made this point well, it's dogmatic in its foolishness. Look at what they say. We, but, but we know. I mean, of course we know. There's no way this is the Messiah because we know that when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from. This is how it is. We know better. That's what they're saying. There's this scene in uh, the Winnie the Pooh movie that came out like 10 years ago uh, where uh, Pooh and friends, they don't know where Christopher Robin is. He left a note for them. And the all-wise owl, who's always sort of, you know, waxing eloquently and kind of telling the little, the Pooh and friends kind of how life works and, you know, dispensing his wisdom upon them. And so he takes this note because they can't read letters. And so they take it to Al and he clears his throat and he puts on his bifocals and he explains how what he's doing and reading this note is very difficult and it's not easy. So deciphering letters. So he's kind of big lead up and then he reads the letter and the letter says, gone out, busy, back soon. That's what Christopher Robin wrote. And Al's kind of struggling with this a bit. And he says, busy, back sins. And from that, Al extrapolates that Christopher Robin has been abducted by back sins who are all throughout the 100-acre wood. And they're, they're, they're these mean creatures, monsters, that come and take abduct children. And so Pooh and friends go off on this journey to save Christopher Robin from the Baxen. And he just misread the letter. And that's, that's a little picture of what's happening here. The foolishness of unbelief. All the confidence in the world. We know that when this man comes, the Messiah, nobody's going to know where he comes from. We know that. We know better. It's actually a testimony of our own culture. I think we especially, kind of being in a, in a post-Christian culture, we sort of have this attitude. We know that uh, science has adequately explained the origin of how we got here. And the idea that this old, antiquated, Hebraic text would explain how life came about, it, we know better. Science has the answers. We know that the idea, the exclusivity of Christ, that only through Jesus can one be saved, we know, but we, we've, we've been around the block. We know that there are a variety of religious religions out there, a variety of religious claims, and that to, to, to say that any one of those religions has the corner market on all of a religion is silly. It's outdated. We know better. That's what we think. Back to St. Hilary, what he said, all unbelief is foolishness for it takes its own wisdom from its little finite pea-sized brain and it tries to measure eternal God by that standard or with that instrument, right? Their mind. So, the first question dealt with Jesus' training. Where did he get this training? We didn't see that he went to seminary anywhere. The second question deals with his origin where did he come from and the third question deals with his destiny where he's going 
Okay, so uh, in verses 32 and following is where this question is taken up. And what, as we mentioned earlier, the Pharisees and the chief priests, which by the way, this is an odd pair because these, these two groups are just, they're kind of always at it. But Jesus is such a great uh, enemy to them that he sort of brought them together on a little mission to, to put a stop to him. And so it says in uh, verse 32 that they, they send out the temple police to try to arrest him. And then Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer than I am going to him who sent me. And as I said earlier, he's right. In six months, he will die, he will be raised, and 50 days after that, he will ascend back to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, to rule and reign over all creation. And then their question, though, is this. Well, I mean, they can't, they, they, they can't begin to fathom what he's saying here. And so they say, well, where does he go? Verse 35, where does he intend to go? To the Greeks? To live among the dispersed Jews? Is that where he's going? And I think the way to read that question, it's kind of, they kind of ask it with a little smirk on their mouth, like, he's going to the Greeks, the dispersed Jews. Because if you remember, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were, uh, suffered a lot, right, at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And as these, these empires conquer them, Jews get displaced and dispersed. So there's Jews living all throughout the world. And they're saying, is he going to go out and live with these Jews among the Greeks? And the answer of course, is no, he's going to heaven. In fact, that's the answer to every one of the questions they ask. Where were you trained? Heaven. Where, are you go- Where were you from? Heaven. Where are you going? Heaven. But they have no capacity for understanding what he's claiming. And the reason is because of their unbelief. The fruit of unbelief is a dogmatic foolishness coupled with cynicism. That's what we see. That last question is a, is a cynical question. And here, here's, here's where cynicism kind of creeps in. I think our culture, uh, contemporary culture, is a very, very cynical culture. Here's where it begins. Cynicism begins with naive optimism that's been disappointed in some way or form. And so we, 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 we look around, we see the suffering, the evil, the, the, the troubles of the world, and we don't believe that there's a God, or if he's there, he's not able to control or, or move things in a good direction. And so we despair and we go cynical. We think things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And the root underneath all of these fruits of foolishness and cynicism is pride. It's pride. Now, C.S. Lewis has said that a proud man is always looking down on things, looking down on people, looking down on everything, right? The proud person is the ultimate measure by which everything else is measured and everything else is below them. So they're always looking down. And C.S. Lewis says this, because they're always looking down, they can't see anything that's above them. And I think it's an apt uh, picture of what's going on here. Pride is fueling all of this unbelief. And they're so locked in on what's down below them that they can't see the, 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 the answer to all these questions. That this one is really from heaven. He's 
dispensing divine heavenly mysteries. And he's going back to heaven. But they can't fathom it. They can't, they can't see it. Pride has them looking down, locked in on what's below. Locked in on uh, the, the, the horizontal. Completely incapable of looking vertically, up, heavenward. And this is the fruit and roots of unbelief. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want us to consider this question of, of why belief? Why belief? I mean, John, in John's gospel, this whole gospel that we've been looking at, this is the big question. Do you believe in Jesus or not? And, I, you know, I could see us kind of thinking, well, that, that, seems, that seems kind of arbitrary. Why does belief in Jesus mean so much or matter so much? You know, it's like two guys that are in an argument and they want to like, let, let's go fight in the alley. Like, you know, wh- wh- why fight? Why not let's play a match of skip bow or let's have a knitting contest or let's, you know, see who can eat the most hot dogs. Why, why does it have to be a fight? It just seems kind of arbitrary. And we, we apply that. Why, why is so much stock given to belief in Jesus? I want us to consider that for a moment. Well, it boils down to the nature of the universe. What is the world really like? Think about it. If we look outside and, and you know, many people will look outside and say, what this is, is just a big pile of scarce resources. This is, that's what the world is. It's resources for the taking. By the way, they're scarce. So you have to really exert a lot of will, a lot of effort, a lot of energy and power in order to get your slice of the pie, right? And, and make your way through the world. That's kind of what the world believes about the world itself. But Christianity takes a very different approach. And John has made a very different claim. He says that the heart of the universe is a person. Jesus, the Word made flesh. He's the, the, the Greek word is the logos. He's like the, the cosmic glue that holds the whole thing together. If you peel back the layers of creation of the world, what you're going to find is a person, is a triune God. It's personal. So here's, here's the real question. How do we relate to personal beings, to people? We relate to them in, 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 in trust, right? I mean, belief. That's how we relate to others, is it not? Like if you're going to get married or if you're going to have a dating relationship, there's got to be some level of trust for that relationship to go anywhere. Children must trust their parents. Parents must trust their children. Teachers have a trust relationship with their classmates. Business relationships, your business partners, you got to have some level of trust. It varies, maybe the trust from one relationship to another, but trust is still essential. Belief in the other is still essential for some kind of relationship to be forged. And John has said, look, the world as it is, has behind it a person, Jesus the Christ. And so the fundamental question of how we relate and get along in that world is, do we believe in Him? Do we know Him? Do we trust Him? That's the critical question. And this is why belief or unbelief in Christ makes all the difference in this life. Now, 
I want you to imagine with me uh, a spaceship. Let's say we just, we just landed on Mars. Big, you know, success for planet Earth. We got to Mars. We did an expedition. We had people, you know, driving around their little spacecraft on Mars and checking it out. And so it's time to leave. It's time to go back home. And so this, this is the best space crew the world we can muster, and we've got the best spaceship, we've got the best equipment, we've got ample fuel, the teams, the morale's great, they're excited, they searched Earth, they're heading home, so they load up, they get ready, they take off, but here's the problem. They start heading towards Jupiter by accident, and they don't realize it, and they're crushing the journey like they are rationing their fuel and their food, they're getting along, they're dodging asteroids, Everything's going just incredibly well. But they're moving away from life to Jupiter. And that's a major problem. They're not moving towards Earth. This is what, this is what John is saying. Jesus, this is his claim. Jesus is life. As you, you could be crushing life, but to the extent that you're moving away from Jesus in this life, you're moving to peril, to your own destruction. It's just kind of, it's the nature of the universe. You move away from life, a source of life, you move towards death. You move towards life, you gain life, and life eternal has been the claim, it's been what Jesus has been claiming in these scriptures. That's how it works. Well, there's a next question, I think. That's why belief is so important. One final question. How can we trust or believe in Jesus? Is he worth our trust? Amanda Ripley has recently wrote an article uh, where she talks about trust. And she's kind of culled all the, uh, the literature on trust. And she says there's three ingredients for trust. Three things. Ingredients. Ability, benevolence, and integrity. Those are the three ingredients in trust. And it seems pretty accurate, right? I mean, if I'm going to trust um, an auto mechanic, I want them to have an ability. I want them to know how to fix cars. they got to have competency. They also have to have benevolence. They, I want them to have my interest at heart, and they need to be a person of integrity. They're not trying to rip me off, hoodwink me in any way. Throughout his ministry... Jesus demonstrates these three characteristics in spades. I mean, he, ability, he's calming storms, he's, he's raising people from the dead, he's providing food, miraculous, he's healing people. He's demonstrating his power constantly in, this, in, these, in these gospels. And benevolent, all of that power was only used, every ounce of it was used for others, in the service of others. His goodwill is toward others. He's benevolent, and he's perfect, and he had to be. The cross epitomized the trustworthiness of Christ because he took all of that power, and he gave it up for you and me. He was perfect. He was the unblemished lamb that was led to the slaughter, and there he is hanging upon the cross, pouring himself out for us. The tree of life, right? What was a tree of, of death for the Romans became a tree of life for Christ's people as he's pouring his life out, issuing himself out for those who receive him, who believe in him, who entrust their lives to him. 
I mean, there's plenty in the world to cause us to question God's goodness. I don't, I don't deny that. And that's one of the reasons we try to remind ourselves of these gospel truths every weekend or every, every week because it's difficult to, to continue to, to, to embed them in our hearts. But don't lean on your own reason or understanding. The revelation of God, that's, that's where infinite wisdom is. It's not our finite little minds. Lean into that. Because unbelief, it puts us, it puts us on the fast track to Jupiter. But belief in Christ takes us, it takes us home. That's the promise. It takes us home. Let me pray for us as we um, conclude. Spirit of God, help us to believe. Belief evades us, and we pray that you would awaken us to Christ as the one who issues forth life. And we recognize, too, that just as our physical life uh, came about independent of our own will, we didn't ask to be born, so it is with our spiritual life that your Spirit must grant it to us. And we pray that you would continue to strengthen our faith as we take part in these sacraments. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.